listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 R. Hello. Hello. Uh, my name is Sarah. <laughs> Sorry, you're waiting for me to say hello. <laughs> to my left is Geraldine Hickey, to my right is Daniel, Daniel Burt. Burt. Uh, and this is the Breakfasters podcast. Here we are. This week, what a weekend we had. Uh, we won the Community Cup. Huge win from the Megahertz. And you played, you debuted, and we had a big chat about that. It was all we chatted about on Monday morning, so there's a bit of that in this podcast. I think podcast. that's fair. I think so too. Mm. Uh, we also uh, met... And spoke to Noni Hazelhurst about her new SBS documentary, and it was just a real pleasure to hang out with Nones. Yeah, our mum. And uh, <laughs> Nones, wow, she's been upgraded. <laughs> uh, I talked about um, going on an adventure in some glowworm caves in New Zealand, which was very fun. And also, we got to chat to Declan Green, who is the director and uh, co-collaborator, I guess, in for Wake in Fright, happening at the Malthouse Theatre. We also chatted to Sammy J about. His his new live show, Major Party. That is a very funny man. And in its, continuing the politics bent, Eric Jensen came in to discuss his quarterly essay, The Prosperity Gospel, how Scott Morrison won and Bill Shorten lost. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. As promised, we're going to talk more about the megahertz win by one point yesterday at the 2019 Recklick Community Cup. Yes. One point. One point. 46-45 was the final result. Massive crowd on the coldest day of the year. Over 11,000 people were there. When I woke up... And there was that heavy, heavy fog. Mm. Did you, were you awake early enough to both? Yeah. yeah to, and I was... Man, that fog was still around at 10 o'clock in the morning. I was walking, yeah. I was walking Ralph through it and I thought, if this sticks around, <laughs> it's going to make an interesting game. Mm. I um, I got up, uh, oh, I don't know, not too, not too early, but it was a nervous wreck beforehand. Like, I think it's just because I had no... I can... I had no idea what it was going to be like. Yeah. And it's um, – and because I, I just get so overwhelmed and because I can't place an emotion on it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, it was – sure, it was exciting, but it was also – like, I was getting all worked up about not knowing what to take with me. Like, I was trying to go through – like, we – you know, because we've got a megahertz Facebook page – and I'm just I'm trawling through it, trying to find someone that's posted a list of what to take on the day, <laughs> you know that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I totally get that. And I was just like, because I'm like, oh, okay, so you know, I'll get there, and then I'll get changed there, and then what am I going to wear after? And then like, there's a jacket that they have out on the field, and it's a small jacket that they want to fit in a tub. And uh, but I've got my other jacket that's all, I want to take that, but that's too big to go in the tub, so I'll just have to take two jackets. I'll take two jackets. Do I need to take? I think I need to take a bag. I'll take a bag, I, I, and then I'll put my drink bottle do I need to take my drink bottle because they're going to have drink bottles there like do, what do, I, do, do I just leave that and it was just the spiral oh, yeah mate. the panic so spiral what, where did face paint fit into this list <laughs> no, right at the end. <laughs> right at the, you know and it was you know and then deciding whether to get you know because you could get um uh you'd it wanted to get strapped or massages oh, and stuff course. before the game. Did you get a rub down? I got a rub down on my on my lower back. Um, oh, got it all warmed up. Yeah, it was just great. Got my ankle strapped, 
uh, just because I, I rolled <laughs> just walking down the street on Monday <laughs> night. And I just went, oh, yeah, might, uh, <laughs> might tighten that up. <laughs> so I got my ankle strapped and, you know, even then was like, oh, do I really, should I should I do that? And, oh, yeah, all right, just do it. And Now having played the game and gone through the day, do you feel like all of that worry was for nothing? Or oh, are you okay no, with it? I, I don't think it was for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it was still, you know... I kind of, yeah, it's funny, I was playing, um, when I was first out there, you know, the, when I first got out on the field, I was playing against Georgia from, um, oh, I can't remember the band's name, anyway, Tiny, and she's so funny, and she was just like, yeah, and I, you know, we were just take because it was her first game as well, uh-huh. um, I was like, oh, mate, I was so nervous before, and she goes, are we, how are you feeling, she goes, oh, no, whatever, uh-huh. cool, well, I'm like, oh, I hate you, <laughs> I've got to say, I came into the... Uh, I wasn't sure whether to come and see you in the change rooms, but I wanted to come and see the mm. niggas beforehand. And I came and I found Jez. And I said, how are you feeling, mate? And she had tears. She looks up, she has tears in her eyes. She goes, yeah, everyone did. keeps asking me how I'm feeling. Yeah. And it makes me think about how I'm feeling. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I don't know. Oh, and you, right. you had the call ahead of you as well. So I was like, I'm just going to stay out of their way. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of nerves. Mm. Uh, yeah, because I just... Honestly, I just wanted to... And I think because I'm so used to... Um, been on my own when I've got a big thing like that to do. Like if it, before performing. Right, yeah. It's like I don't have a whole team of people around me going, oh, how do you feel? What? Do you, oh, this is great. And I'm just like, oh, I, yes, I understand all of this, but please don't talk to me. I yes. just don't want anyone talking to me. <laughs> and it's so hard to, to say that because, you, you know, of course you want to be part of the team and you are yeah. part of the team and stuff, but at the same time I'm just like, just leave me alone, also, please just leave when, me alone. when you see someone struggling or a bit nervous, oh, your yeah. instinct is to go up and go, and that oh, is, oh, give yeah. you a hug yeah. sometimes. And that yeah. is great to do and, you know, I think it's, it's finding the, the right balance. Anyway, out on finally get out on the ground and it's, you know, I don't know, it, I just, I think I came out on the ground like halfway through the first quarter when the, um, when they just kicked three goals and I was just like, oh, I feel really good about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm glad I'm out here just standing. Standing down the end. Yeah, down the end. And it's like, it's so, you know, I mean, it's great playing in the forward pocket, but also it's like, you just, I just wanted to get more Involved and you know I'd come off of like at half time and people were so muddy and and I've got these pristine white shorts <laughs> on and I just you know have barely had a touch and stuff so it's you know that kind of you know and it yeah it goes really quickly but I was just like I couldn't even see the scoreboard you know so it's Mate, that we couldn't see this with the commentators people kept going what's the score and it was <laughs> the farthest point away from us as commentators we had yeah. to peer through our binoculars to see these tiny little numbers <laughs> on the top of a screen. Oh, man, I had no chance of seeing it. Because when we were out on the ground, they were like, just keep an eye on the scoreboard and the time and so you know when to swap out. I was like, I can't. I can't, I can't read that. that. <laughs> just have to, you know, come and, come and grab me. But um, Meanwhile, my only touch was uh, my first 20 seconds there, I got sconed in the head with a football. Oh, oh did you? <laughs> yeah. We did say, you don't, it's not the community cup until either a child or <laughs> a loved one is whacked in the head with a <laughs> stray right. football. And the, the, the fashions on the field as well were outstanding. Oh. I, I saw a greyhound in a better jacket than I have. I think the dogs were the best dressed on the day of everyone. Oh, totally. Pretty great. Harry and Lloyd came wearing <laughs> matching raincoats. I know. They were very, actually the first person I bumped into when I walked into the into oh, really? Vicarpa's cat with ah. the dogs, which was a nice, I felt like that was a nice little yeah. 
serendipitous sign. And also the the streak is, uh, A, coldest day of the year, which makes the streaking Mm. all the more heroic. But in the age today, EBL gets a shout-out as uh, launching an email campaign in response to changes to the 2016 Summary Offences Act that stated streaking could be classed as obscene and indecent behaviour. But uh, they got a pledge that there would be no arrests. Yeah, so if there were no complaints, there'd be no arrests, <laughs> yeah. which was pretty good. So do you feel, how do you feel? I feel, do you know, I, I'm trying to work out how I would feel if we lost. Mm. Ah. Because it was, you know. Well, I, it's a very familiar feeling for the Megas. Mm, but not for me, mate. Yeah, true. Not for me. True. I'm, you know, 100% win for you, me. You really got the dream, the one point win. Yeah. It's so great. You know, so I'm... Um, and also because I, I felt um, – because I didn't have any possessions of the ball. Like I still – you know, obviously I contributed. But, you know, um, I think the closest I got was I nearly took a mark in the – in the, like right in front of the centre square. Oh, not the centre the, – the goal square. And it was – and I dropped it and it was, you know – devastating but also just i oh, just as soon as i dropped it there when there was like just like five big men around me that picked the ball up and took it away and i was just like <laughs> no you did a really good job oh thanks but it's not like i you know dropped nature possession i tried to grab it and then it was just like this just these big men take it i'm like oh good on you fellas go on take it away that's thanks very much <laughs> no nah, you, you did a really good job i was watching that and it can be uh, what i remember from playing vaguely even mm. being near the ball it happens really fast yeah so when you're far away watching the play you go oh everyone's moving really slowly to you know, but when yeah. you're in it that moment where you you can't get the ball is so fast mm. and then it's gone yeah but you did some great you did you played your role yeah, did, yeah, you did. Exactly. I mean, no, I keep. I have that shepherd on loop in my head. Mm, yeah, it was a powerful. The, it was a powerful shepherd at the most powerful yeah. point in the match. Hey, could you hear us calling Salty Croc? Got it in so oh. many times. <laughs> I did. Yeah, every, every now and again, I'd hear it. And also, I think I heard it sometimes when the ball was no nowhere near me. Yeah, sometimes there was boring stuff happening, right. so we'd just um, commentate the people that were standing on the side oh, watching. Right. So the megas who were on the bench. <laughs> Because, you know, why not? Yeah. Had a spirit of the day. And how'd you, uh, how'd you go with the trophy? Oh, I had a great time with that trophy. I drank, <laughs> I drank some beer out of it. And, um, yeah, someone put some – oh, yeah, Hawksy put some beer in it. And I drank – and I don't know what else was in there as well, but it didn't look that clean. Um, <laughs> it was a bit like uh, having communion at church. Yeah. <laughs> Just a lot of price going. Oh. Little dregs down the end. <laughs> and then, and then we took it. Um, you know, we left to go to the after party. And we took it with us, and then I, I grabbed it, and then, yeah, just saw a cop car and just went. Oh, I want to get a photo in front of that cop car holding this cup. Did you get one? Yeah. Oh, I, just, <laughs> I, just, I said to Shorty, get a pic of this, and then I just, you know. <laughs> Just crouched down in front of the cop car, holding the, <laughs> holding the trophy. But there's so many people that came, came past, and were like, "Yeah," getting in the photo and stuff. It was, yeah, it was great fun. But I think that was the, you know, the exciting bit. It's just having these random people call out your name and, yeah. and stuff. I remember, I think when I was first down the end, like in front of the grand the grandstand, and I was standing there, and I could hear people yelling out to me. I hear people going, "Jezza, Jezza," and I'm like, "I can't." I think I yelled. At one point, I'm like, I can't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> know. You know, and you turn like you'd scan the crowd, and there'd be someone smiling and waving, and you're like, it's that classic. I don't know if you're waving at me yeah. or my opponent. So it was just, yeah, it was yeah, it was exciting, and um, but. F- Wow, what like that one point win was unbelievable. Like that emotion oh, of mate. that like, last minute of like, 
Oh, my gosh. I just heard a recording that a friend made of the last 10 seconds of the game. Oh, and really? I am genuinely embarrassed at how loud we were screaming. Oh. Uh, well, yeah, you were counting well, down. Oh, it was, it yeah, was, Kat it was, said that in the last couple of minutes you had just given up on calling the game and just were barracking for the oh, megas. Oh, yeah, it was, it was flat out like <laughs> we were just, just screaming. Great. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, go megas. Go megas. Go Jessa. Thank you. Yeah, well done. Three triple R. Uh, one of the best things I did when I was in New Zealand, I did a lot of really great things when I was there, um, but one of them was I, uh, Kath and I went blackwater rafting. In what the, the hell's that? Yeah. Well, I know it sounds really ominous, doesn't it? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, because you think whitewater, like what's blackwater rafting? Mm. And it is the peaceful part of whitewater rafting. So you think about whitewater, why is it oh, white? Oh, of course. Yeah, and blackwater ah. is just when the water's still, so you're just kind of floating So along. is blackwater rafting just floating? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. And I didn't know that until um, – so we went to um, – <laughs> It, it's through uh, in Waitomo Caves where the glowworms are. The glowworm are. caves. Yeah. Yes. Did you go in there? Yeah, we did. How did you? Did you walk through? No, we went you... in it. We went in a little boat. Ah. See, I went in a in a tube. <laughs> oh my god! Really? Yeah. Yeah. So shit, that's awesome. Yeah, it was so great. Um, so and I, yeah, I discovered what blackwater rafting because for me, I was like, yeah, adventure. I'm going to do it. Well, blackwater rafting, <laughs> you know. Um, and then we were reading because um, we were on TripAdvisor and we were reading reviews of the particular tour that we we're on. And one person had written like, oh, you know, this is wasn't adventurous at all, and you know, it's all really tame. And Kath was like, oh. These people that write these reviews that don't know what they're talking about, blackwater rafting is just floating, you know, essentially it's just, I'm like, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, let's do it anyway. Um, but it was, it was, it was, there was an element of, you know, fear and stuff to it. Totally. And Any yeah. kind of getting in the water, putting your body in the water in a strange yeah. place. Yeah, that too. There's an eel in there. Oh, an electric eel? No, just a, just an yeah, a cave, a cave eel. A cave eel. Did, yeah. Did you have a guide or? Yeah, yeah. So we have guides. So and we, you know, there's a, there's a group of us, and I love, I love a group activity. Yeah, you do, mm. don't you? I love it because <laughs> it's, I, I kind of, you know, it's that classic kind of. It's always the start of a, um, a, a not a horror film, but a, a <laughs> you know, a tra- worst case scenario type film. Do you go around like and an tell act- everyone which one of them's gonna? Get kicked, no, get knocked just, off as just you go. In my mind, you'd, you'd be the first to go. Yeah, and it'd be like, who, who's going to be on my team? How are we going to survive? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that whole. That actually makes me feel safe to be with you on adventures. Yeah, because like, like you prepared the, in your head. Yeah, I can see who the leader's going to be. It's not going to be me. I'll what? be able to. I'll be able to delegate the leader. You know, wouldn't and, it just always be Kath? Yeah, mostly. <laughs> but if she's not around, you know. Was there any risk at all? Uh, no, 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 no. Well, you know, there's a risk in everything. But um, but the people doing the tour made you feel very safe and, and comfortable and, and stuff. So, but when you uh, – so you, you go to the place and you get decked out in wetsuits. Um, oh, that's all Because it's so – you know, because it's winter. Yeah, but <laughs> strange wetsuits. Oh, they – oh, yeah, for you. I didn't mind. It's just like oh, wear, my, go, wear my swimmers underneath. When you, you play know. cricket, club cricket, there's a team box. 
Oh, oh, is it? Yeah, that is disgusting. For when you, you forget your own. Oh, oh don't God. never forget. <laughs> anyway. um, oh, we've inspired an entire generation of <laughs> young men to not forget their boxes. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so we, you know, we get in our get in our wetsuits, and then you get in a little to in a little mini bus, and then head out. Um, and then the first thing that you get, you get your tube. This is a tire tube thing. And then, because uh, in the cave, once you go in, there's some little mini waterfalls. Mm. Um, yeah, so you have to. Um, so the first thing they do is take to to this river, and they you jump off the end of the jetty backwards <gasps> with the tube on your butt Get into the water. Out. Yeah, and it's like it's so. <laughs> it's. I was just like, you know, I'm going to have to do this really quickly and not think about it. Um, <gasps> so I was just standing there, and they go right. So. Um, uh, we're going to do oh, – what did they say? They tricked me into going first. It was like, who, who would like to see a demo? And I put up my hand and then they went, right, off you off you go. <laughs> um, and then I – so and it was just one of those things. I put the tube on my butt, turned around, and my only concern was my contact lens falling out. Oh, yeah. So I was just like, I'll just have to – you shut your eyes? Yeah, shut my eyes. Keep them – Keep close. That is a master manipulation. Who would yeah. like to see a demo? Yeah. You're the most cautious person. Yeah. You want to see how it goes first and then yeah. you get thrown almost literally in yeah, the deep yeah. end. Totally. So, so I, uh, you know, I put two on my butt and jump backwards into the water. It's freezing, but it's fine. And then and then you just kind of float along. And then there's like a ladder on the side. And I mi- nearly missed the ladder because they're like, just grab onto that ladder and get out there. Otherwise, you end up in the ocean. And I was like, oh. <laughs> anyway, I made it through there and then um somehow i managed to be the first going through the cave so they were like yep just walk through there and it's i got so stressed out about being the leader oh, <laughs> i just could not <laughs> handle it because i'm not a leader and i got so overwhelmed i just i had to i'm like i can't go I can't lead. <laughs> Someone else has to go in front. Kath, you're in front. Because it was like I'm not good at um, walking over, you know, uneven ground anyway. Oh, <laughs> and I felt like because I go a bit slower because I don't want to fall over and Fair smash enough. my head on a rock. So and I'm like I'm holding everyone up. I don't know the best oh. the best path to take. Can someone? This is too stressful. It's too stressful. Someone needs. And to, you're doing this with the tire attached to you with the rubber. You just have to hold on to the oh, tire at this okay. day. So yeah, I've got, I've got to hold the tire, oh. and I'm you know trying not to. It's some of the rocks might be slippery. Well, we've got these boots on, so they're pretty great. Is it dark in these caves? Uh, we've got a head torch, but this is just going into the cave. We're not even in yet. <laughs> <laughs> but then we, you know, then we get in, and then you um, you get on your tube and you start floating around, and it's it's magical. Oh, I cannot believe yeah. that you got to do that in a tube. It's yeah. extraordinary caves, aren't they? Oh, unbelievable! And so you get through to a certain bit, and then um, you kind of all link up together. Um, so you put your feet on the tube in, in front of you, so under their arms, like you're on a water slide, you know, when oh, you go down a water yep. slide with your mate. Um, so you kind of, you know, all linked up and there's a rope along the side and then everyone turns off their, their head torches, so it's just pitch black and all <gasps> you can see is the glow worms and it's amazing. It's so incredible. Um, 
and it's years ago Cass parents did this uh, the same thing or very you know might not have been the exact same tour but because on I told them you know I messaged like oh we did the cave thing and then um and <laughs> Cass mum was like did the banger go off and then I'm like what what banger and she goes when they did it when they turned all their head head torches off they set off a firecracker in the oh, cave oh my god that's <laughs> Wow. The worst. <laughs> I'm like, no, there was no no bangers. Oh my god, <laughs> no bangers That's in the terrible. Garden, what is with these people? Oh, I know, just... tricking everyone. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, oh. so, but it was yeah, it was amazing, and you you know, you you're floating through, but <laughs> I just imagine that would be so terrifying. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't it? A dark yeah. cave with glowworms and a. Yeah. Bloody firecracker! Sounds like a gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, These are my people. Oh. Unbelievable. <sighs> so, um, but it was just yeah, it was magical. And then we kind of float around a little bit more. And at one stage, I noticed that um, the two guys weren't floating; they were just kind of walking through the water. And I was getting a little bit uncomfortable in my tube because uh, we had, like, a big one and I just couldn't quite sit up properly in it. It was just like I had to kind of just really lie back or sit up really. And I was just like, oh, I just – I might just um, get out and walk for a bit, you know, just kind of, you know, float sure. along. Um, except I <laughs> – when I got out of the tube, like it, the water was so deep. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> like it was oh my just, god. and I was just kind of oh, I'm just holding on to the thing, and because it was so deep, I couldn't get back on oh, the tube. Oh jeez! And then and so we're just. Were and people then, saying anything to you? No, 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 because they hadn't noticed. Oh. And then the the tour guides they were in the middle of saying something, and then they saw me, and they're like, oh, oh, okay, sorry, I didn't realise that you'd fallen off your tube. Oh, <laughs> hang on a second. Oh no, she's fallen. Everyone. Oh, don't don't be afraid to yell out if you've fallen out of your tube. Don't don't be afraid. It's okay if you've fallen out of your tube. You've fallen out of your tube. Come over here. Let, let, let us help you back on your tube. And I didn't want to say. I actually got out myself. It was, but it was just. I had no idea how deep and oh treacherous the waters you were there. Tour guide is Jesus. I mean, uh, <laughs> maybe maybe. And then, but then I was like, oh, I better stay in the tube from, from now on. And then when they get out at the end. They, um, there's these um, uh, like cr- crickets or um, there's a oh, what are, they were, oh, I can't remember what they were called but these cave yeah crickets they, these cave crickets that you know hang out at the entrance cave of the cave gra- crickets yeah but they but here's the thing they look like spiders they've got oh! really <laughs> long legs and I mean sure there's only six of them but they and they jump you know they jump from the water on the wall and stuff and the two is up. No, no, I'm not. And people, you know, and then also the tour guides are like, oh yeah, the you know they're these things and they're imagine they're great. actually tarantulas, but they're like, let's just make up a bit <laughs> of no, a lie. Don't freak. Yeah, they're cave crickets. <laughs> no, 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 they've got a. Oh, I can't remember their name because I I posted this on Instagram and lots of um. Oh, was it the picture you put up and you said there was a. There was a spider on my leg. Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he picked that. It was it's cave creek. Yeah, you look that up and find it and read the mess- the um, comments because lots of people told me what it was. But they um, so he grabbed one and they're like, look how friendly they they're are. Called and spider stuff. crickets. Oh, 
No, that's not what oh, I was. No. Okay, all right. Wasn't that? Um, but he was like, and I'm Camel like cricket? frozen. Maybe it's not a cricket. <laughs> Just never. Mind. Anyway, I was frozen, like lying on this tube when he had this thing in his hand because I'm so oh. terrified by spiders. Oh. And he's like just holding, going, "Oh, it's you know really friendly and stuff, and you know, isn't it? Aren't they cool?" And I'm like, I'm just trying to tell him how terrified I am of spiders. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I know it's not a spider, but it's the, you know, it's the movement, and it looks like a spider, mm. and I, and that, and that terrifies me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I have a, you know. Uh, a, a joke about you know that, and I think that's what made my fear it's so much worse. Wetter, W-E-T-A. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Um, I messaged that as well. Thanks. Oh, thank the you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I knew someone would. So, um, and he's holding, it and then he puts it on my leg, and because I'm wearing a wetsuit, it's kind of you know just fine. And then I'm just like, oh please, <laughs> I just, Whoa. and I'm like, okay, this is fine, this is great. But then it just crawled up onto my. Oh God. Yeah, it just, and then just rested on my on my leg. Lady bits, oh and he God. got really awkward oh. about it. I'm on like, your mons? <laughs> yeah, just went and sat on my mons, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> what did you do? I get awkward about it too. I got out of the tube. Yeah. I, I fell oh out God. of the tube again all the time. You've got to stay in this tube. <laughs> Three. Triple. Actor, television presenter, screen icon, Noni Hazelhurst, <laughs> has a new documentary series, Every Family Has a Secret, which premieres tonight at 7.30 on SBS. Noni, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Now, this series features six Australians across three episodes. It seems like a risky undertaking for the subjects. Can you explain what they've got themselves into? Yeah, it is a risky undertaking. They're, they're all people who have been driven uh, to try and get to the bottom of a secret that they know exists but they don't necessarily know the answers uh, and to do it in a, in a public way is is risky but I guess that's just a measure of how much they want to get to the bottom of it not to find closure because that doesn't necessarily happen um, but to, to just understand uh, what it is that has haunted them their whole lives or as you know and not all of them since birth but a lot of them yeah and in you know in the first episode we see uh, one woman going on what looks to be a pretty grim holiday. Yeah, yeah Angela. Yes, her story is is very affecting, um, and it's something that she's still processing. Uh, you know, twelve months after we we actually shot it, uh, she she was born into a family where the, her father was incredibly abusive. Um, a Hungarian uh, supposed refugee from the Second World War. Uh, and on upon his death, she discovers some paperwork of his that starts to give make some sort of sense of why he was the way he was, but not complete sense. And so she puts her hand up to go on the journey to actually find out what his background was, which is pretty remarkable. How did you find someone uh, like her who was willing to come and share their story and, and travel through that story quite publicly? Uh, well, I didn't, but yeah. the, the producers, the produce production company is based in Perth, and the the woman in question uh, had a recycled clothing shop in Perth, and one of our executive producers was in that shop, and they started talking, and I think Claire, our producer, had had some sort of idea that this might be a concept. She had worked previously on Australian Story and on the original series of Who oh. Do You Think You Are? So I knew I was in good hands. Yeah. Um, and they got talking, and then about 12 months later, Claire contacted Angela now and, and asked her whether she would be willing to do this, and Angela was very keen to, to try to get to the bottom of this. 
Yeah, it's right. quite a profound story that Angela has, and yeah. it's really, it's quite gripping as well. And I think you as the host, you you know, obviously went on a bit of a journey with her. Mm. Um, how did you find that whole experience? Well, I think because I, I have this philosophy that we're all ordinary and vulnerable and that no one is special but everyone is unique, um, I, I have, and as an actor, I have great empathy with yeah, other people. Yeah, I think that really shows in well, the show. Well, yeah, and also the fact that people, you know, I've done 24 years of play school and 10 years of Better Homes and Gardens and blah, blah, blah. So people kind of know me mm. or a version of me anyway. Yeah. Um, and and so they can feel quite comfortable talking to me because there's only one person, I think, who's really used to cameras. And so for them to sort of be on this journey and be filmed at the same time uh, is can be quite confronting. So I... You know, obviously, I'm affected um, by mm. by what they've been through because for all of these people, they're very vulnerable, and they it's really high stakes. I mean, to me, it's real reality television because it's not exploitative or manipulative of either yeah. the subject or the audience. It's actually high stakes, real time, discovering what it is that has governed their whole lives and how does it compare like because um david field the actor is in the same episode and mm. he's on his own journey and but this is someone that you already know and is a is a friend how does mm. the, you know that compare to you know going on a similar kind of journey to a stranger um it was interesting because yes i do know david i've worked with david and and you know david has a persona as we all do he has a persona with which he confronts the world which mm. is kind of quite a tough guy and you know pretty resilient and again to see him being vulnerable and being um, raw and emotional, uh, you know, it, it's a very human response. And I think that's why the program is so powerful because as a human being, you are engaged in watching these human beings go through something and you're sitting there. I mean, even now I sit there and I'm very moved watching it, thinking, God, how would I feel? You know, mm. you can see how they feel yeah. and you rarely see real feelings on television. <laughs> Call me old fashioned. Um, but, you know, that's what I think is so powerful about the program because they're giving human responses. It's very high stakes. Did it help that you've kind of been on the other side of this ledger with uh, who do you think you are? I think that really did help me, actually, yeah, because one of the things, one of the big takeaways from, you know, I was incredibly lucky to, to be privileged enough to do that. One of my big takeaways was why did I not know this stuff? Mm-hmm. about my own family, about my parents and about, you know, obviously about the historical part of my family. But y- you realise the shame and the guilt and whatever it is that drives people to hold these secrets. And, and you know, I have great regret that my mother and my father, who protected my mother, that they couldn't talk to me about what they'd gone through because it meant that we could never have uh, a human, you know, a really full relationship. It was always... I was always protected or kept from the truth. And... And I remember when my mum was actually dying and, and I talked to her about how brave she'd been and she said, well, I'm, I'm afraid that if I start crying, I'll never stop. So that this suppression of the things that have formed you as a human being, I mean, yes, they have a right to keep a secret, but is it ultimately is it ultimately counterproductive to hold this pain or this fear or whatever it is inside you? Mm. I think not, Mm. but obviously people have the right to if they want. And that's one of the risks of the subjects in our show because not all their family members approve of uncovering these secrets. So there are other consequences as well which need to be dealt with. And, yeah, I mean, the the ethics of secrets and who gets to disclose, Mm. is there... 
have there been people who have found a secret that maybe during the course of the shows you sensed some regret or they were getting into waters that they didn't want to continue? Yeah, I asked all of the subjects, you know, and they are cared for very much by the producers on an ongoing basis, so they're not kind of, oh, there you go, you've been finished with now, off you, <laughs> yeah. off you go and deal with it. Um, I asked all of them whether they regretted starting the process and they didn't, even though for some of them it was incredibly painful. Uh, and and quite traumatic in, in a couple of instances, um, although it's not all bad news. I mean, some of the subjects have amazing, amazing discoveries that change them totally as people. Um, I think the process of, of at least opening those doors allows them to have some sense of relief and release and also in a weird way to absolve them of any guilt or shame, that residual guilt and shame that they might have carried, that they felt, oh, my God, there's this terrible thing that's happened in our family and, you know, we don't want people to know about it. So every every case is different or every story is completely different. Um, but the process for all of them, I think, was similar in that they did feel... It's hard to describe. It's one of those intangible things because there's nothing to compare it to. But they did feel like it opened their hearts to some extent and mm. allowed a weight to be lifted to make some sense of mystery. Mm. You kind of touched on this before, but, I mean, how do you stop... It's a fine line between showing someone's story and pain and uh, for entertainment and, and kind of taking advantage of someone's pain as well. How, mm. as a presenter and producer, did you kind of overcome that really tricky balance? Well, I think I don't think entertainment was ever a factor in, yeah. in working out what this was going to be. Um, I think... We all subscribe to the to the view, all the program makers and I subscribe to the view that as human beings we share more similarities than differences. And so if you can if you can see people being human and have empathy for those people, then it kind of makes it okay. You yeah. know, the way it's done is so careful and so sensitive. And I know that the people, as I said, are supported every step of the way and you know and they also have the right to stop if they want to you know it do, it's not no you're in this now you've got to see it yeah, through to the end you know? no, no, no. no 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 it it's it's obviously got to be done carefully because these as i said are real high stakes things and and it's not easy um, for, for people to go through this. But I think there is a sense of relief, if, even though, particularly with Angela in tonight's episode, although the, some of the discoveries that she made were horrific, she's glad she did it. Mm. She's really glad she did it. What is the role of forgiveness in the series? Well, forgiveness is a daily, <laughs> a daily thing for all of us to struggle with, isn't it? Um, look, I think, they, I think they have to get to a point... Well, I think we all have to get to a point where we have to... The more we understand about people's motivations, the easier it is to forgive because then you see them as human beings rather than as flawed individuals who have affected us detrimentally, you know. So I think forgiveness is... If you can get to that point in any situation like that, particularly with your immediate family, particularly if you've been in a stressful or traumatic environment, familial environment, then forgiveness is something that is... If you can achieve that, that gives you some peace. Mm. And you also have subjects who are offered forgiveness for the sins of their ancestors as well. Indeed, indeed. But, you know, as I said, I don't want this to sound like it's all doom and gloom because no, there's no. a couple of the stories in, in the later episodes 
that are quite remarkable, quite remarkable. There's one woman who, uh, I'll just give you, I won't spoil it, but she starts off, her story starts, she was about five years old and she was sold or given away by her family in Taiwan to an acrobatic troupe. Mm. And she's now, she's my age and she has an adult daughter and the daughter goes on the journey with her. And you see Li Yin actually completely change. She starts off incredibly controlled and incredibly small as a person physically and emotionally. She's very tight and, you know, she's been brought up uh, in a quite a cruel environment uh, as a performer. Uh, and you see her absolutely open up and blossom in her relationship with her daughter. All these doors are opened while, you know, Olivia can understand why her mother's been the way she is. And as they were actually making the program, more discoveries were coming to light, you know, in real yeah. times, which which no one could have predicted, you know. So it's really uplifting and wonderful for, There's for that story. There's a really beautiful scene when um, <laughs> where she finds out her real name. And yes. It, and it's incredible and it's just, yeah, it really... You're right when you said earlier, it's like it is reality TV. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it was really moving. Yeah, it is moving. I'm kind of interested. We're talking about being vulnerable and opening yourself up mm. to the public. You mentioned before that you've been on our screens for years mm. in play school and in every other way. And it is quite strange because I'm talking to you and I do kind of feel like I know you, which is <laughs> yeah. really odd. Yeah. But you must get this every day of your life, and you would have for many years. How have you been able to um, navigate that personally? Do you ever, how do you keep a piece of, Noni for Noni, and <laughs> when people come up and are like, "Hi, <laughs> Mum," yeah, know, yeah, it feels. Well, children are, are a great level. Um, I remember when my son, my oldest son, was about eight, and people were off. I was on air doing play, play school at that time, and and people would say, "Oh, we love you," and da da da. And Charlie said, "Why do people think you're so great?" <laughs> and I and I said, "Because they don't know me like you do." And he went, "All oh, right." <laughs> so, you know, yeah. as I said, every we all have a, a persona that we choose for any situation, yeah. and you know, we very few of us are confident enough or don't care enough to to actually be who we are but I think 24 years of play school working for a preschool audience was the greatest gift I could ever have had because if you're not being even even though it's a 32 page script and it's rehearsed five times before it's ever done uh, if you're not being an authentic version of yourself a three-year-old is just going to go they know they're not going to you know they're not going to be engaged and if you can engage the attention of a three-year-old for half an hour adults are a doddle you know? yeah. <laughs> Very true. Well, Noni, consider us a doll. Uh, (laughs) uh, Your new documentary series, Every Family Has a Secret, premieres tonight at 7.30 on SBS. Uh, It's marvellous and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Three, triple, ah. Cook's seminal 1961 novel Wake in Fright was adapted a decade later into a cult film famously restored in 2009. It was a mini-series in 2017 and now the tale of a young English school teacher who finds himself trapped and penniless in a fictional mining town has been adapted again, this time into a one-woman play at Malthouse until July 14 and we're joined this morning by its director and adapter Declan Green. Declan, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure for us and what is it about this story that compelled you to have it reimagined? Um, I think that there's a lot of really pertinent questions in Wake and Fright that are pretty relevant to Australia at the moment. Like, I think as soon as you start looking at that story uh, as an outsider 
who uh, attempts to seek a kind of um, sanctuary in a, uh, in, a, in a in a town that can be read as a metaphor for Australia in a lot of ways, suddenly you see a lot of resonances for particular political things that are happening in Australia, mm-hmm. and um, and. Not only to do with refugees, but to do with lots of outsider bodies at the moment, queer bodies, transgender bodies. And um, and so that was sort of the primary, uh, well, one of the, the, I guess, the political reason for doing it right now in terms of its relevance. And the other reason was just that it's actually a really amazing story and it's a really cherished story. And one thing that, uh, one story that Australia seems like weirdly uniform in really loving and, <laughs> and valuing is a cultural kind of... Um, cultural text and cultural moments so yeah that seemed like another reason to do it so what what adaptation or you a fan of the original book or the film or what how did you come to it i love both um i actually i i haven't seen the film in a really really long time and i i I sort of consciously tried not to re-watch it because um obviously theater and film are a lot closer Mm. than um than literature and film so i i went back to the book mostly as a source text but actually the the film is incredibly faithful to the book Mm. it's just the film has its own kind of language of really incredible imagery like the root shoot and stuff like that that really sticks in the brain in a really different way that's what i was asking you about because i mean in the film but also in the book they're so evocative in um the way they make our landscape and australia seem terrifying how do you how do you get that and bring that across on stage well i think that it would be sort of a fool's errand to try and do it in any literal sense like you can't give a sense in a theater of just the intense vastness and heat of the australian landscape in a way that you can in film and i think it's really important that you've got to register how like crushingly oppressive (laughs) that (laughs) landscape is because i think that's really integral to explaining why bundy yabba is why it is and the relief that's sought in alcohol and stuff like that the idea that this is this place that is consciously trying to reject the bodies of the people who are trying to live there, these settlers. I think that's that's really important. So we've just tried to essentially do it in the least literal way possible and go, okay, we're actually just going to channel all of this through the body of one performer in one very small theatre space. It's just going to be all an act of imagination that we kind of invite the audience into. Yeah. Uh, sorry, what was the, what was the uh, challenge or gift of channeling this through, through one woman? Uh, well, um, I think part of it is that... Uh, uh, early on, we knew that you know, like like Wake and Fry is is in um, in one sense really about masculinity and about a particular kind of um, Australian larrikin masculinity, and I think it kind of uh, is. The, I think the original text is pretty brutal <laughs> about uh, in in its depiction of that kind of Australian masculinity. So I mean, that was one thing that Zara and I and Zara Zara Newman is the um, is the actor who's performing the piece, and she's also the co-creator of the work. Um, uh, that was one thing we both were really interested in. That was one of the reasons that we both wanted to work on it together because Zara is fe- female and that's that's one of the reasons, that's, I think, an interesting lens to have on the work as a narrator to come through her body and her lived experience. But then Zara also came to Australia um, uh, as a 15-year-old um, from Jamaica. So, so she actually had that yeah. <laughs> kind of lens on Australia, that kind of, like, lens of somebody who came in as an, as an outsider and uh, had to assimilate in, in particular ways. So that's something that's kind of... Uh, that's a perspective that's really brought its way into the work as well. Also, Zara is just one of the greatest actors in the country. She's... And then watching her perform this role, like, I think any good one-person show is, like, it's almost like an Olympic feat. Like, it's, it's, it's beyond difficult to do and to watch somebody do that, is, I think, is really pleasurable. 
it's interesting the watching the well also the music i mean so the you you have you bring that dimension to this production which is obviously not in the book or necessarily in the film either yeah that's right so we collaborated with um uh friendships who i think are um friends yeah. of the station yeah, <laughs> yeah <of course laughs> the station um uh and which is um uh misha grace and nick brown and audio visual duo and um, they're, they're both working on the show, actually. Mish has done um, um, video design for the show and um, and Nick has done sound for it. And um, so, yeah, Nick has written this incredibly detailed, visceral, uh, kind of gut-punching, like, kind of electronic score to, to the show, which, again, is kind of in- well, interesting, I think, because I don't think it's any way you would expect Waking Fright to sound. Mm. I think if you were going to uh, ask somebody how, how they would imagine you'd score something like that, they'd go, yeah, like slide guitars and scraping corrugated iron or something like that. But I think friendships are really interesting because their music actually does sound like Australia, like yeah. in, in the most kind oh, of... it does, in a really terrifying yeah, way. Yeah, 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 exactly, which is sort of... And do of, they play live every... Are they there every night? It's just a... They, it's just a score that yeah, they've made. Right. But yeah, weirdly, yeah. we actually did develop the work with Together? Nick in the room live. Yeah, yeah like I wrote the, the script at the same time. We, we kind of went into it going like we don't think the script or the sound should have any um, hierarchy between them. They should be developed at exactly the same time. Oh, wow. So we developed the play just in a single room with Nick kind of live mixing and DJing essentially and Zara riffing on the book and then it all got built together that way. Do you have any fondness for the town of Bunanyabba? Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of what's what's sort of interesting about about Waking Fright, and maybe why it holds such um, uh, reverence culturally, because it's not it's a super super complex thing. Like there are wonderful things about that kind of larrikin Australian masculine identity. Like it totally is. There is an absolute charm to that, and there's a particular kind of cynical Australian humour that uh, kind of circulates around that identity. That's really kind of delightful in lots of ways. But um, there's also aspects of that. Uh, particular type of Australian identity that are really toxic and can be really terrifying and really scary and used as a cloak over much more kind of sinister ideologies and things. And I think that's sort of the fundamental tension of the play mm. and that's sort of what we're trying to explore as well. And the outsider, John Grant, isn't necessarily inherently lovable either. No, no, and I think that's... Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, he's arrogant and he's conceited and he comes into the place thinking he's above everybody and you sort of watch him get almost systematically destroyed by the place. But I think that's also one of the things that's sort of interesting uh, politically about um, the, ret- the rhetoric of kind of uh, how outsiders engage with Australia's, Australia at the moment because uh, particularly uh, w- w- when... when Whenever there's a, an, an outsider who's trying to gain access to Australian culture, there's such a conversation about uh, the, the idea that they have to be perfect in their victimhood or perfect in their um, in their uh, supplicants to Australian values or whatever. And if they are seen as arrogant or if they do want to carry <laughs> aspects of their own culture or their own identity or their own gender identity or anything uh, into the mainstream as part of their assimilation, it's seen by a, a lot of Australians as arrogant or or un-Australian or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So, um, so I think there's, yeah, I think there's an interesting parallel there as well with the, John Grant. You were just saying before that, that you think the piece is going to be divisive. I mean, it was off air, so I don't know. If you're, <laughs> oh what are you talking about? It's going to be a total crowd pleaser in every way. No, but I mean, I think that's great. I mean, do you think, I mean, why? I guess if you, if you want to say that on air, you don't have to. No. But why, is it, why, do you, why do you think it's going to be divisive? And do you think good theatre has to be or...? I mean, I think Wake and Fright should be divisive because yeah. Wake and Fright was divisive when it first came out as well. Like, it's it was. Like, I, I love that story about one of the initial screenings in Australia about how somebody in the audience stood up and yelled at the screen, "That's not us." <gasps> 
Like, I think that's incredible. Yeah. And, and I think the worst thing you could possibly do with Waking Friday in 2019 is defang it or, totally. try and, yeah. or try and just massage it into the culture as something that has become just kind of an accepted, cherished, iconic Australian thing. Like, it, it should uh, have its full potential as something that's angry and something that's cynical and something that's that really kind of pushes back against the mainstream in an interesting way. There must be hundreds of beers consumed in the story. How, how do you manage the drinking component? There's actually the, the, there's none in ours. I mean, there there is. There's a the million um, beers drank, but we didn't um like the the set to the play is just it's it's an empty theater mm-hmm. and there's a mic stand and then we have a whole bunch of lights on the ground and, and heaps of speakers and that's basically it. And Zara's standing on stage in stage blacks. So we kind of describe beers being drank and there's lots of um sound that accompanies the idea of beers being drank but mm-hmm. there's yeah there's never actually a can of beer or anything like that on stage what there's about, actually only one prop what about after the show <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that's that's very important <laughs> although i have to say i we, we i spoke to malthouse about it and we were like we actually don't really know what this is going to do to bar sales at all like either it's like people going to come out of this going oh my god i need a drink that was so oppressive or they'll be like i'm never drinking <laughs> straight past the bar it might be the worst bar sales of the year well declan green is the director and adapter of Kenneth Cook's novel Wake in Fright on at Malthouse until July 14. Uh, go to malthousetheatre.com.au for details. Uh, Declan, uh, good luck with all the drinking and uh, yeah. thanks for speaking with Breakfast. Thanks for having me. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Oh, <laughs> writer. Hello, everybody. Writer, Hello. actor, comedian. Future National Treasure, Sammy J, whose work is all over the ABC. He has a new live show, Sammy J's Major Party, on at the Athenaeum Theatre this weekend. And he joins us now. Hi, Sammy. All over the ABC is a strong time. <laughs> Three minutes a week. It's not like I'm sucking up all the you, air time. You, you pop up everywhere. I, I turn on Insiders, you're there. Yeah, insiders. That was that was tough. I had to go on as one of my characters, the government coach, the day after the election. Yes, you must have recorded two. I recorded multiple versions, uh, ah. like one in case there was a hung parliament, one in case Labor won, and the one that no one expected us to use. So it was the least funny. <laughs> The government coach looking really happy. And i got to say, a lot of my progressive friends weren't too happy to see me the day after the election on TV celebrating the victory of the coalition government. But what do you do with the material that you didn't get to use? You just kiss it goodbye? And... No, there's a vault. <laughs> you know how they see. There's a vault of amazing ideas that have never seen the light of day. It goes down there. Normally, and- um, sorry, just dropping in. Normally I'm quite happy to um, tell everyone that when I work with you and, you know, share videos on Facebook... When- when you made me a blue tie supporter, I was a bit more reluctant to share that around. I'll Noted and remembered. Oh, I understand. <laughs> what is going on in this show? This live show that I'm doing. Well, because as you've just alluded to, I sort of found this audience now. You know, it's weird. Like you spend years not having an audience mm. or, or eking them out bit by bit. <laughs> and suddenly now because of this spot I do on the ABC, there's been, I guess, just a lot more people coming towards me, many of them baby boomers, um, but I will take their money. They're humans too. And so, yeah, I'm doing a live show, which is throwing all these characters from my ABC stuff on stage for the first time. So... In, in some ways, it like, feels like going back to uni review days for me. Like There's a lot of characters and costume changes and jumping around. But I'm also trying to do a show that yeah, is for people who have never seen me before, so I'm throwing a bit of the old musical comedy in there as well. Yeah. You'll be pleased to know. A little bit of stand-up jumping around. <laughs> Classic Jay. And, uh, 
And it's been a lot of fun. I'm sort of halfway through this national tour. Uh, is it just? It's not just you on stage, though, is it? You've got a bit of a support cast. Yes, and, well, one person uh, by the name of James Pender, who is amazing. He started out on Ronnie John's years ago, and mm. he does he writes with me as well for the ABC. He plays guitar and he plays violin and all these musical instruments. He's a hilarious guy as well. So it's fun having someone to bounce off. Do you do you like politics? Oh. Now that it's sort of part of my job, it's uh, my love for it is waning. Yeah, I spent years just as a nerd, just following it, and now I have to follow it every week to to try and make it funny. So, um, yeah, like I'm not going to say the word like. Yeah, I respect democracy. <laughs> <laughs> and what could be funnier than that? Do you well, when you so with the coalition when you were saying for hate to change your little skit at the last minute? To, do you go our oh, coalition and government? Um, this is going to be really good for me to mine. Was there a party that you were barracking for just because you thought this is going to be comedy gold for three years? Look, it's weird. I think because of, because this is now my job and I focus so much on it, I think I have become a bit dead inside as a citizen because okay. I used to be really engaged in things. And yeah. I think there's two parts of it. One is that I'm, I'm you know, looking at it just with a comedic eye. Like every time I read the news, like what's the funny bit of that story? How could that be funny? Even if it's horrific news. But also because it's at the ABC. I'm really conscious of not, you know, feeding into bias stuff and all that, and I really try and work pretty hard to slam all sides. And, you know, like a few weeks ago, we did a ALP yoga routine, which is just slamming Labor after the election, which I thought was really funny. And some people were saying, oh, you're a Liberal Party stooge. I'm like, well, every other week I'm accused of being a, a Labor Party stooge. So I think that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. But, so um, yeah. You're halfway through the tour at the moment. Um, yes. How's it been? Anything exciting happened? Yes. Um, Twelve fatalities in the crew um, <laughs> went down over Bass Strait. And it was pretty rough. Okay. Like yeah. we had to still perform that night, but we mm. we were like sopping wet. I was yeah. the sole survivor. In fact, um, I was Man, commandeering well, the plane. Congratulations <laughs> on being so brave on getting Look, back out there. No, I think the baby boomers demanded my <laughs> performance, and I swam. It was like was is it King Island? Is that the one that's Little halfway cheese. across? <laughs> yeah, the cheese. Yeah. So I actually floated on some cheese, yeah. which the baby boomers loved because I'd served that up with a sav blanc and yum yum yum. <laughs> I mean, this is the sort of sweet baby booby humour you're going to get now. No more fingering song and silliness, you know. It's all, it's all highbrow now. Yeah. You are, you are a very good boy. Uh, how, do you, how do you thread the needle or talk us through the process of making sure that you are funny while uh, adhering to ABC expectations? And- Daniel, 12 people died. <laughs> No, seriously, where's the humanity? You're going to seriously launch back into a... You're right. ...a question. <laughs> Let's have a minute. I prefer to focus on them. <laughs> That's right. Um, but, yeah, no, threading things. I do it a little bit now and then. Mm. And, uh, I don't know, like the, the weirdest week for me was actually... I'm going to flip to a real answer now, but, like, the Christchurch shootings back in February was... I just started back on, on air this year, and it's like, oh, OK, I'm going to try and make this funny, and you just can't. And so that was an example where I just gave up the comedy hat and tried to I did a play school parody of just trying to explain terrorism to children and mm. I was like I've never been more nervous than that when when that went on air because you just don't know that's the one where you're jumping the shark and people are going who's this loser you know trying yeah. to um but it, it it was taken in the spirit in which it was intended and it, it sort of went well because my stuff gets released on Facebook before it goes on TV so by the time it goes on TV I know if I've destroyed my career already because <laughs> <laughs> you can tell from all the comments and <laughs> um, so it's a little it's a chance to flee the country. Yeah. yeah. Well, what does... Uh, I mean, what is your relationship with social media and picking up news from different places? I don't consume a lot on social media. I never joined Facebook in a personal capacity, thinking it would be a fad. I did the same for Twitter. 
I'm still I'm still sticking to that. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's gonna be a longer fad than normal. So I'm not. I don't have sort of personal accounts. So I'm sort of quite insulated in that sense. I just I put my comedy stuff out there in a bit of a one-sided, one-way street. I like engaging and stuff with that, but I'm pretty good at just switching off. And I've I've seen too many people have to quit social media because of public disgraces. Mm-hmm. Sorry if any any oh. of you have had to do this. <laughs> yeah. to say, but you know, it's, it's a it's a really. We all know I'm not saying anything new to say it's a horrible minefield on the internet, but I've mm. sort of just sidestepped it slightly, and I think I missed out on a lot of things as a result. Often like I don't parties, parties and stuff. Yeah, I assume I'm invited to so many parties. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had 12 funerals just last night, and that was a start. I love having friends like you because when I forget to invite them and they're not on Facebook, I go, I definitely, oh, yeah. I definitely <laughs> sent you an invite on Facebook. <laughs> um, oh, wait, people talk a lot about the role of like comedy in politics, particularly after election shocks and whether it adds to the narrative or takes away from it. How, do you, I mean, there's someone who was actually interested in politics before they made politics funny and part of their routine. How do you feel about it? I feel, look, I I think people can give far too much weight to the idea of uh, satirists and comedy. I think it's really important. Like, I love doing it. I grew up watching that sort of stuff as well. But I don't think we or comedy can change the country at all. I do think it can change people by giving them a laugh and a bit of a relief or release. And, and the best possible comedy can sometimes make you think in a little different way. But in a lot of the way, you know, people will have their own biases and their own thoughts and, and they form those irrespective of what some skinny, blonde, bird-like velociraptor <laughs> man is doing on the TV screen once a week. Um, sorry, speaking of release, can you just... I've just found this headline for an article and I haven't clicked on it. I, I suspect you I know, know what yeah, it I is. I know what it's going to be. And it says, I once did a 40-second fart in a business meeting. Talk us through that so I don't have to click on the article. Okay. Well, that was... Um, it was like a half-hour chat I had with this lovely journalist. And, you know, it's always the one thing you say that becomes the headline. <laughs> but it's true. I have this ability to sustain El Flatulenzo. Amazing. Over the course of nearly a minute. The boomers would love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I keep it separate when they're in the room. But an audible fart or just... Yeah. Yeah. Here I am talking about it again. I'm going to... This is going to haunt me. Until now, it was a private party trick. Like, you ask my friends, not on Facebook, they they weren't there, but um, (laughs) others and, and, you know, people knew about it. And now here I am on the radio confessing. Well, there you go. Is there, is there a, a and obviously we have a new character in development live in the studio. This uh, the flatulence political forecaster. <laughs> uh, but is is there a character that you're sick of that you love that uh, that that you love that nobody else does? Um, <laughs> yes, got one of those. Um, uh, the look, the government coach I thought was, it started as a thirty second joke, which is wouldn't it be funny if a footy coach was answering questions about politics? That was like two years ago, and then that just sort of spiralled on. And I thought, oh, when Labor win the election, at least I've had to put him to bed. And then they won the election, and so now the character has got like it's like on steroids, and he's taking all the credit. Um, we did the, we had a huge fluffy scomo head built like a Disneyland style mascot, which we tried in the live show. People thought it was a bit too creepy. And the next day we replaced it just with a cardboard cutout and everyone loved it. So now I've got this giant wow. fluffy scomo head that cost a fortune. <laughs> Taxpayer funds, I should say. Wow. That they, and I think I might pull that out for the, for the TV spot in the next couple of weeks. That's, so there's like an uncanny valley of scomo heads. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, right next to all the sketches that never made it to air. Yeah. It sits there on the shelf. Uh, and is there is there is the live show, is it the material that's, you know, too hot for uh, for TV? It gets a little saucy, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, it's weird because I can look out straight away and I think I came in trying to be all things to all people in the crowd, but a lot of people are coming to this show for the politics and for that satire. So now I just come straight out and rip into the politicians and then, and then go from there. So... um. But no, it's it's uh, 
it's probably the tamest show I've ever done, not comedically, but in terms of language and content, because it's all more about democracy and jumping mm. around. Have you ever had any feedback from a politician or from someone that you've taken the piss out of? Yeah. What, what kind <laughs> yeah. of feedback? Can you share the feedback? I, I, had, too- I had to go to Canberra last year for this ABC, like they were trying to raise funds and that went well. And, <laughs> um, and so I went along and met, and it was this strange little room where there were all politicians. And <gasps> in, in a past life as a nerd, I would have been really excited to meet them and I was just sort of standing in the corner avoiding eye contact. Generally speaking, it was... Um, the ones on the left who'd come over and go, oh, I really enjoy that spot or that sort of thing, and others, like people like Tim Wilson, who is, you know, he loves throwing yeah. himself out there, so mm. he'll often take the joke and jump into it. But I had some awkward, uh, I guess, averted eyes with um, one Peter Dutton. Oh. Who, who <laughs> I, who I just slammed <laughs> that week, I think. Because <laughs> you forget people watch. You still treat it as like you're just having a joke with your friends, and you do forget sometimes that it's out there, like, you know, John Howard could be watching the ABC on a Thursday night and stumble across my face and, mm. God help him and me. <laughs> <laughs> do, have you? Do you person now that you're in the game and you're a player in a way? Do you have more fondness or respect for? I for the politicians. Yeah. I, I felt myself getting too close at one point because I was trying to get them to do cameos. Right. So like Anthony oh. Albanese came and did a spot for me like two years ago and things like that. And yep. I've had Tim Wilson and Richard Dinatali and Kelly O'Dwyer. And then I. But you know, I, sometimes they're all nice people, and I felt myself pulling away now from that because uh, you don't want to be used as a, as a tool for them to yeah. make them You need better. to keep your integrity, Sammy Jane. Yeah, integrity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, your new live show... So Sam- one minute fast. <laughs> Sammy Jane's major party is on at the Athenaeum Theatre this Friday, 28th of June. Saturday's sold out, but you can... Uh, there's a late show on Saturday as well now. Oh, okay. Two yep. shows on Saturday. Yep. Right. Well, so we'll go to laughingstock.com.au for details. The show's at 9.30 on Friday and there's a late show on Saturday as well. And uh, Sammy J, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Three triple R. Eric Jensen is an award-winning author, founding editor of the Saturday Paper, and editor-in-chief of Schwartz Media. His quarterly essay, The Prosperity Gospel: How Scott Morrison Won and Bill Shorten Lost, is out now through Black Ink, and he joins us now. Eric, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Now you were embedded uh, with both campaigns. Uh, and attended Bill Shorten's election night party on May 18. Um, was that a memorable night? And how did that evening square with the time that you'd spent with the campaign? Yeah, memorable is uh, a kind of strange notion. I, I th- <laughs> um, everyone who went into that room, I think, expected the Labor Party to win. And by eight o'clock, everyone in that room knew that they hadn't. Um, and I don't know that I've seen so much resignation in one room where no one is dead um, <laughs> but but the, the weird you know usually at a wake everyone has a fond story to tell or you know is, is at least pretending some warmth um, that wasn't the case I, I've, I've never tasted uh, cheesecake as as sour and sweaty and sad as, as the squares of cheesecake that came out at nine o'clock in the essay you make the point that the, the all the journalists who are kind of travelling on these, you know, on these buses, so to speak, with the politicians, particularly the ones who were with Shorten and in bed with Shorten, genuinely believed he was going to win too. Um, and that was the feeling. Do you think when you're in those situations, you kind of fall for the, fall for the, not the fluff, but, you know, you, you, get, you get kind of sucked into their view of the world? Yeah. I don't think you get absorbed into their view of the world. I think everyone 
thought Bill Shorten was going to win because the polls told us Bill Shorten was going to win and it was miraculous that he didn't. And I think we keep forgetting that Scott Morrison only just by a very small margin won. It's, It's not like everyone was wildly wrong and there was this kind of huge pool of quiet Australians waiting to vote for Scott Morrison. The country is split pretty much 50-50 and has been for a decade uh, when we look at, you know, votes in federal elections. Um, and so I I don't think it's it was, you know, naivete or um, foolishness or simplicity that caused people to believe that Bill Shorten was going to win. It's, it's that all the polls told us that and, um, you know, most people couldn't imagine that uh, a government without an agenda was going to win another term. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, you speak to uh, Paul Keating, or you quote Paul Keating as saying he can't see the numbers adding up. Was he one of the few voices that... uh... There were senior people inside the Labor Party who were getting extremely anxious about the fact that they couldn't see how the seats would fall for them to actually find a way to government. Um, And those voices were being relayed up to Shorten's office, but the prevailing view at the top of the actual campaign architecture was that Labor was going to win. Mm. And and you say now that this might be the last policy election of a generation. Uh, whose, whose shoulders is that on? Oh, yeah. I don't know if I say that as, as stridently as that. <laughs> I, think, I think what I say, Daniel, is that there's a chance that this would be the last policy election. Um, the shoulders that falls on, um, you know... I think, uh, a a spread between voters, the actual party themselves, and the optimistic notion that Bill Shorten could replace uh, popularity, which he didn't have, with policy, which he did. It's a a huge gamble. It's not just that we were having a policy election. It's that we were having a policy election with a deeply unpopular leader um, who was running against the conventions of contemporary campaigning who was giving hour-long press conferences and and policy announcements that you know that went on in great great detail until until the tv journalists at the back of the room had run out of um you know the thumbs to count on Mm. you make the point i mean uh, your descriptions of shorten who gave you a lot of time in this uh, are kind of almost painful to read you make really interesting observations about him his his desire to be liked um, his kind of deep self-analysis as well. He seems like someone who thinks a lot uh, about himself and his place in politics. Yet in this, he he does say, and he, and he said this while he was kind of on the campaign trail, that he didn't believe the popularity polls. He kind of dismissed them. Yet we believed the polls that Labor was going to win, yet he didn't feel that uh, that his, his unpopularity um, had any weight. And he almost felt that, that people in the electorate didn't really even understand those polls. Having spent time with him, how do you think he formed that idea and do you think that that's how he really felt? Yeah, Bill Shorten is perhaps the most insecure person I've ever spent time with. Wow. He he has this extraordinary spring of insecurity in him Um, and I think that's fundamentally what made him so unpopular, you know, that all of the focus groups that tell us that, you know, he was thought of as duplicitous and inauthentic... That's the surface of it. I think what people can't handle is that when Bill Shorten looks at you, he has an extraordinary need in his eyes and people do not want to elect leaders who are desperately seeking to be liked, who are full of need and, um, you know, urgent 
kind of uh, clawing, um, cloying um, ho- hope and, and, um, and uncertainty. Um, and all of that goes toward the fact that when you tell Bill Shorten he is unpopular, he becomes deeply upset. And when you ask him if his brother were more, unpop- were more popular than him at school, which he was, he becomes really agitated. He's, he's, you know, he's someone who at his own mother's funeral asked his piano teacher if he was a better student than his brother. He has, he has this uncontrollable need to quiet the uncertainty within him. And I actually think that would have made him a terrific leader. I, I think, um, you know, insecurity is something that we've never elected in this country. And yet I think we are a deeply insecure nation. And one of the answers to insecurity is to build consensus. And we won't change the kind of country we are if we keep electing, you know, kind of tough, confident people who don't seek to build con- consensus, who just tell us, you know, everyone, everything's going to be okay, you can be comfortable and, you know, it'll work out for at least half of you. How do you pass the, the difference between insecurity and self-doubt? There are a lot of great leaders who have self-doubt, uh, Lincoln, Obama, these sorts of figures. So self-doubt is something that we uh, celebrate, but what, what is the difference between insecurity and self-doubt? Yeah, I think self-doubt is a behaviour, whereas insecurity is a trait. Insecurity is right down in the heart of what makes that person. And, um, you know, there are all sorts of politicians who are capable of doubt, um, but there are very few who, when you get down to their essence, don't know who they are, haven't settled their character, are uncertain, um, don't have a self that has been resolved that they can depend upon and draw on. And, and that's who Bill Shorten is. There's all sorts of, you know, very cheap pop psychology that you could get into about why that is. Um, but I, I really think, you know, when we look at ambition, which is absolutely necessary for leadership, um, the literature broadly agrees that it comes either from privilege or from insecurity. Those are the two great drivers of ambition. Um, and if if we are only comfortable with confident leaders, by definition almost, we will only be electing from that pool of ambition that is driven by privilege. And if we keep doing that, the country won't ever change. We won't heal all of the unhappinesses that define Australian life. Mm. And switching to uh, Scott Morrison, how... uh Shorten seemed to be almost not not jealous or maybe even envious of of Morrison's religiosity or where where he gets this wellspring of confidence. Yeah, I think I don't think it's a jealousy. I think he's just Shorten is um, mistrusting of confidence in others, and he sees in Scott Morrison someone whose confidence is almost divine. Who, who feels as if their place in the world has been assured by the compact that they have with God and that things that they want will happen because they are good. You know, Scott Morrison has an extraordinary view of um, the decency of his place in the world and that gives him great, great certainty. And it's why he could spend five weeks campaigning without really a policy to speak of and not for a moment seem to worry that things might be empty. Mm. What do you think it was about Morrison that resonated with the electorate? I read this book and, yeah, I see, I mean, I read this essay and I see this man that's obviously very confident. He never seems to doubt 
his chances at all and says that in so many ways. But my take was a little bit that also the electorate voted in someone we didn't know and they didn't have baggage that came with them. What, how do you feel about that? Yeah, Scott, Scott Morrison didn't need to show too much of himself to the electorate because what he was saying to the electorate was the greed of at least half of you is okay. That to to aspire to comfort at the expense of others is decent because you deserve it, because you've worked hard. And that's that's the gospel sung by Scott Morrison. And it's a uh, it's a pretty ugly gospel. And it's it's one that doesn't carry the whole country with you. In fact, it explicitly excludes a huge number of people. And uh, it's the kind of politics we've had here for a long time, and it's the kind of politics that stops the country um, voting in ways other than the very, very marginal, very divided ways that it has been voting for some time now. Scott Morrison did look like he was having fun. Yeah, look, when, when you don't have any policies to sell, um, it's that, that emptiness can be mistaken for honesty. And, um, and it, if all you're doing is shearing sheep and, um, you know, uh, signing skateboards, uh, that, you know, that's five good weeks if you're not interested in, in, in policy. Yeah, and, and what is the, the... Because it looks like now the, po- the media class was expecting a post-mortem of the Liberal Party and it, there's no reason for a post-mortem because the patient is still alive. Uh, and so um, is, are we, have we answered the questions of why Labor lost, do you think? Is that, is that going to be years and years to, to unpick? I think the problem is that we haven't answered those questions and that we probably won't in any sophisticated way because losing is so upsetting Mm. in politics um, that you naturally become very defensive when you lose. And so, you know, we have... We have Anthony Albanese now wondering whether or not earning $200,000 a year makes you rich. You know, if if these are the answers to the questions of this election, then... Um, we're, we're a really troubled country. There are so many uh, cute little uh, tidbits in here. You, you've got... You know. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, but uh, I think you... you know, I didn't like it before when someone said it was painful to read. The cute, <laughs> cute tidbits. No, but, but the, the fact that Scott Morrison doesn't read international fiction, for instance... Yeah, why would you? Yeah. You know? Unrelatable. We've got a good country with good stories or to tell. I to anything from overseas. Why would I read yeah, about it? funny names a lot of the time. I like yeah. our you stories. Know? My name's Ishmael. I can't spell it. Um, yeah, I think the Bible isn't... No, no anyway. Um, the, sorry, I was not suggesting the Bible was international fiction. That was, I was just off on one side. Um, yeah, I thought you guys... The thing that's most surprising when you get close to Scott Morrison is not his deep ordinariness, although that is confronting. Um, it's, <laughs> it's that he wears so much more makeup than Bill Shorten. Are you serious? Does he really? Like pancake. Really? I didn't yeah. know... What, oh, oh, what an insult. Oh. That's what you come for. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. know. It's, so it's brimming with a sense of the campaign like that. It's, uh, it's a wonderfully compelling analysis. Uh, it's the prosperity gospel, how Scott Morrison won and Bill Shorten lost, uh, Eric Jensen's latest quarterly essay for Black Ink. Thanks so much for uh, coming in to chat with us. Thank you. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.